Welcome to today's episode in Grafted Jewish Roots of Christianity. I am your host, Stephanie Pavlantos, and today I have Terry Murphy. So thank you, Terry, for being here today. I appreciate your time. You're so welcome. I'm so pleased to be here. So glad to be asked. So Terry is a teacher, a writer, and a speaker. And I like the way that you have in your bio, you wrote um, that you are as much of a student as you are a teacher. And I can certainly uh, identify with that because I think the best teachers make good students, you know, and the best students make good teachers. And I also um, noticed the order you have your bio in, teacher, writer, speaker. (laughs) Is that because... Above all else, you consider yourself a teacher first. Yeah, I mean, my kids will tell you that. that I, it, I can't seem to help it. It like comes out of my mouth all the time. So, um, in fact, the idea of being a student more than anything else usually used to annoy me because I told the Lord, I said, you know, the only thing I really do well is I go to school. I'm really good student. <laughs> I know how to study. I know how to put reports together and all that kind of stuff. So... Um, and it's turned out to be a really what I was supposed to be. So I finally figured out how to use it. I understand. I totally there. That's the way actually when I started writing, I'm like, you know, Lord, I'm a teacher. I'm not a writer. And, mm-hmm. and you know, having that whole conversation with the Lord. But um, but pretty much that's what I do. I, I put myself as a teacher first when I when I order who I am or what I do teachers mm-hmm. always first because that's what I love the most and that's yeah. that's yeah. what I do naturally like you said I mean when I think when you're a teacher you can't help but just like oh there's a lesson in this there's a lesson in this <laughs> oh you want me to tell you what that means exactly pretty much yep. yes so some point even um somebody will quote me on Facebook just in fun okay but um because you know they bring up just an innocent conversation or an innocent subject, and I go all biology on them, and you know, or something. And they're like, "Yeah, okay." So I yep, got a little yep. bit too much when I asked Stephanie about this, but yep. But anyway, so um, getting back to you, um, you are a mentor for Word Weavers International. Yes. So would you like to explain that a little bit? Well, first of all, Word Weavers International is a writing organization, a Christian writers organization. And um, it's one I highly recommend for anybody who wants to write, thinks about writing or has been writing for a long time, because uh, we group together in um, the the person to person meetings are called chapters. And so the online groups are called pages. (laughs) So we have chapters and pages. Uh, groups of people who get together to um, critique each other. We read each other's writing and we we uh, learn how to give and to receive critiques and everybody needs them. So um, there's nobody's that that has outgrown the need for the critique. Um, and it's just, you build a lot of fellowship there and everything. And as a, uh, each page, for example, I u- do the the online groups mostly because I am on the West Coast and most everybody else is east of the Mississippi River. Um, so uh, I also have a one page that I'm presidenting right now. Well, actually two, one I'm substitute presidenting for. But then several pages come together and I mentor or kind of oversee 
uh, those few other groups of of uh, writers. So yeah, and that's how I yeah. met Terry. She, um, I had joined Page Two, and when uh, shortly after I joined Page Two, then the president um, had stepped down, and Terry took her place for a little bit until I took your yep. place. Yep. <laughs> so. And I and I so, did that for several groups, so that was always really fun. Yeah, just to kind of yeah come in. It's kind of like <clears throat> I used to classroom teach. I I taught in a classroom for a couple of years, and then started having babies, and uh, went back into teaching. And I did substituting, and I thought, ooh, I like this better, even because you get to go in and enjoy the mm-hmm. kids and go home, and you don't have homework. So um, yes. anyway, so it was like it was nice coming into sub and then saying, okay, you get to take over now. <laughs> mm-hmm. so yeah yeah because I I loved how you did it because you know about what probably two or three maybe four weeks in you go oh by the way I'm not here permanently I'm here to find yep, president yep. and I'm like oh that's <laughs> what you're doing did you feel the tap of God so, on your shoulder right about then <laughs> I'm like ooh, yep, okay yep. I think I have some experience there but I was the new person too yep. so I didn't want to just jump in in case some of the uh people who had been there for a few years wanted that mm-hmm. position but but you are also an author and I'm holding your book here it's um a place for me in God's tent and and this is about a subject I really like um cuz it's going back to the old testament yes. and Moses and the Torah yes. and the tabernacle so why did you choose the tabernacle to write about well <clears throat> I have always been a student of symbolism in the in the Bible. I have not always had a lot of resources that I could use to discover what they were or anything, but it always fascinated me, um, even as a uh, teenager. Um, so one of the things that I got when I was very young was this old, dusty tome by Henry W. Soltow, which was all about the tabernacle and its and its parts and it's and so he talked about the measurements and the symbolism and everything in it, and I was totally fascinated with it but it's totally a geek book so you would love it uh if you haven't uh, mm-hmm. looked at it yet Stephanie um it's not light reading by any means but it really fascinated me so then I just got older and started decided that I would go through and I started looking at the tabernacle again and uh it is described three different places in scripture. And the first place that it's described is Exodus 25 to 35. And that's where God uh, tells Moses what it's supposed to look like. Then from 35 to 40, Exodus 35 to 40, Moses turns around and he tells the people, here's what God told me. This is what it's going to look like. This is what you got to build. So the people started building and then starting in Exodus 40, they God says, okay, it's done, build it. And so they assemble all the pieces and ministry actually begins. And the reason I chose the tabernacle rather than like the temple, which we were talking about before, is because this is the only place that the temple does not have the same history of God says this many cubits on this and, and this many panels on that. Um, Solomon put it up and it was very similar to the tabernacle in the wilderness, put up the temple and it was very similar to the tabernacle in the wilderness. But um, this one comes straight from the mouth of God. 
all the dimensions, all the descriptions. So everything in those descriptions, I feel, is absolutely vital, something for us to understand. And so so that's kind of why I also divided the book into three parts, because each we go through the, those sections one at a time. And so in the first section, we go through that first time that it's described. And then the second section, we go through the second. So you're kind of repeating a lot of things in some ways, but you're looking at it from a different angle because, um, well, I'll get into that a little bit later, I suppose. But um, um, that's kind of why I picked the tabernacle to do. And I'm Mm -hmm. still fascinated by it today. Yes, I think it's a pretty interesting subject, but but I think even um, some of the things that you and I spoke about, even the symbolism, the parallels, and all those things that we find in scripture, and and that's I I have to say, whenever I learn and and start seeing parallels, or someone points them out to me, or else I find them, but the parallels between things <laughs> and. It's so interesting. And I read a book and I mentioned it on my podcast before, but it was the Epic of Eden and just such an interesting book. And she kind of does that. The author is uh, Dr. Sandra Richter, and she kind of shows you some of the parallels, too. And then I'm reading another book, um, The Temple in Creation, Uh The Temple in the Garden and the temple as Noah's Ark. And again, those parallels between, I should say the tabernacle. I said, the, and I, I I do that all the time. I inter, kind of do the temple or the tabernacle. And it's actually the tabernacle in the garden, the tabernacle. Um, but it's very interesting. It is very interesting how, again, you see these parallels between even Noah's Ark being a type of tabernacle. When I started looking at it, I'm thinking, well, I love Old Testament, number one. I love Old Testament. But um, when you start reading some of these things, like for the tabernacle and stuff, there's so much detail in there. This many cubits and this many rods and this many that and and this long. This thing's going to be this long and that long. And all this detail and you wonder, why do I care? <laughs> you know, why is this in here? Why did God put this mm-hmm. in here? And yet... Knowing the history of how scripture has been preserved over the centuries, um, there, you know, God's mm-hmm. hand was certainly in that preservation. So there's something there that is important to us for us to understand. And uh, you talk about parallels. I mean, how many times do we parallel something that Jesus said with creation? I mean, just looking in creation, it says so much about God. Um, so everything's like a picture. It's like a story that God is telling this story. And the story is all about himself and his son and his Holy Spirit. And, mm-hmm. you know, if we look at uh, scripture, we're always going to find out what he's like, what what uh, Jesus is like and what the Holy Spirit is like. And so looking at this, I thought, OK, so what does this say about God and what he is like? It's like he's drawing this picture for us of this dwelling place. And then Jesus says, Mm -hmm. I'm going to go prepare a place for you so that you can be there with me. So the idea of dwelling with God has been like from the beginning. He's going to be Emmanuel. He's going to be God with us. Um, And even in the garden. And even in the garden. So so what is this dwelling? What does it look like? And 
and why is it set up the way that it is? And so that's just kind of where I got started with all of this. And so, and then in looking at the dwelling place, since I had three, was deciding, okay, we're going to look at these three sections of scripture because they're all about the same thing. We're going to look at it from three different perspectives. We know that we are the dwelling place of God. So, and we know that we dwell in him. He is our dwelling place as well. So if we look at it, uh, the first section of the book talks about the place and me and what the tabernacle description has to say about me dwelling with him or me being his dwelling place. You know, that the tabernacle is within me someplace. What does it say about that? And then the second part, the, the place and we, it's called, is about being part of the body of Christ, a, a body made of many members, a tabernacle made of many parts, you know, so the dwelling place is made of many things. Um, and so we are corporately the dwelling place for the Holy Spirit as well. Um, and then you can't leave the tabernacle with ta- without talking about he, what it has to do with Messiah himself. Um, and so, in, in fact, it's impossible to do any of those sections without talking about Christ and the tabernacle and and how he fulfills all the different parts and pieces and how he is represented in all those parts and pieces. And so he becomes the dwelling place where we are. So you talk about a lot of different things, and I I really like that, Mm -hmm. how it's a 90-day devotional, 30 days of the place and me. 30 days on the place and we Mm -hmm. and 30 days on the place and he. And so the, he of course is like you Mm -hmm. said, who the Messiah is. Right. And I, and I think that we often think that the Messiah is not in the old Testament. Um, I've heard, you know, many, many, many teachings over the time that I have been in church. And, um, and it's really sad when, when people think that the Messiah is not Mm -hmm. in the old Testament because he really is. How could he not be? If he has been here, if he's, he has dwelt among men forever, he was in the garden. And, and, um, and I think that it's just, all it takes is somebody to show you. And then it's like, Uh Oh, that's what that means, you know? And I think it's the same thing with the tabernacle. Um, Because again, when we go through the Old Testament and even into the New Testament, we see places Mm -hmm. where it mentions tents. We see a lot of places. And and I think one of the tent comes to mean a place where God dwells or where you dwell to be with God. And I love that in, I think it was... I could be wrong, but it was, it's near the end of Exodus. I can't remember the chapter, but Moses goes in and Joshua goes into the, to the tent with him and Moses comes out, but Joshua stays behind and doesn't say why he stays behind, but it's basically because he's staying in the presence of the Lord. He wants to, wants to be there longer. And so whenever we see somebody being in the tent, they're in the presence of the Lord. And and a guy, I mention this all the time, but a guy, the uh, scholar I like, and um, Old Testament scholar, but his name's Chad Bird. And Love he him. talks about um, the the tent and the, the tabernacle and that God's holy place was the holy of holies. But the holy place was still holy. 
the tabernacle was still holy because he was in the holy of holies but why do we name why do we have this name or this title of holy that's because that's where god dwells or he dwelt Mm -hmm. so the holy city is still as close as people could get to the holy of holies so they came to the holy city the holy land is as close as other people will get to the holy of holies of Mm -hmm. just being in the holy land so it was very um it was very intriguing and kind of like oh that makes perfect sense it's it's the holiness is where god is and just like we see in the days of moses you know when when um we had the burning bush I mean, it's wherever God is, that's holy. Right. And wherever he takes up and pitches his tent, so to speak. In fact, I think it was uh, one of Chad Bird's uh, podcasts that he was talking about the shoes. And and, um, uh, we talk about holy. So if you were if you were in um, when when Abraham came into the land and God said, I want you to walk the land. And so he had him walk from the north to the south, to the east, to the west, and and just mm-hmm. uh, circumnavigate the whole the whole land because that was the land that was going to belong to him. But traditionally, when you walk on the place, you kind of mark your territory. That's kind of like marking your territory. So that when <clears throat> I don't remember if Chad said this or this was something that I just suddenly dawned on me, but so. Moses or somebody comes into the presence of the Lord and he says, take off your shoes because the ground that you're standing is holy. You don't get to put your shoes here. It doesn't belong to you. This is my land, only my feet, only my shoes go here. And interestingly enough, one of the coverings on top of the tabernacle, there's leather and then there's badger skins on top of it. And leather is the the stuff that they use to make shoes, make sandals. Right. So it's almost like God throws his shoe on top of the whole tabernacle. This is holy. This is mine. I'm, I've walked on this. I've marked this off. This is my territory. Yeah, that's good. And even in, in this book of Ruth, we see Boaz exchanging a sandal. Mm-hmm. And that's his inheritance. He's taking her inheritance as his, so to speak, or matching the two and taking her as his and giving, um, and she's giving him whatever inheritance she has, and he's taking it on to be her redeemer. And, um, and I think it was just very neat because they even use the shoe, that leather shoe as a marker for your property. Mm. So that's a pretty good parallel there that. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, our, if our shoes mark our territory, then yeah, you can't have your shoes on where it's no. God's territory. It's no. His space. That's where my shoes go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. That's right. good. I like well, that. The other thing that um, that kind of interests me in all of this is that um, we talked a minute ago about you know creation is kind of a picture of God. He he created it in such a way that we can learn who he is by looking at his, we can learn a lot about his character by looking at that, not everything, but we can learn a lot about him that way. And so in the days that the tabernacle is being constructed, there's no written scripture. There's no way for the people to learn by reading who God is and what he's like. Um, and so 
I feel like the tabernacle, the way it's set up and the way it's used and all the ministry that goes on there is also another way of drawing a picture for his people that they can see with their eyes, even though they can't read it, they can see it with their eyes and they can learn who he is and what he's like because of the way that he's put. And it was very important that it be done just so. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, Moses was actually privileged, I believe, to actually see the heavenly tabernacle Mm -hmm. um, and the way that it was, because there's a lot of detail in these scriptures, but not everything. You know, it says, well, there's going to be a lattice work on this certain item. Only what's the lattice supposed to look like? He doesn't say. So somebody had to have seen it to know what that was supposed to look like. Right. That's pretty cool because the Wild Branch Ministry, and this was Brad Scott. And again, a scholar that I just found out of accident, he mentioned that when Moses was on the mountain and it says when God told him to make this in the pattern, he was shown mm-hmm. that that word for pattern Hebrew. Um, and again, Hebrew words, because there were so few words compared to like Greek words, there were only about a thousand or I'm sorry, 8,000 words in Hebrew at the time the Bible was written. So the words had many meanings, but one of the meanings for the pattern the word pattern was also son or child so in a sense what he was seeing is the one whom the tabernacle was styled after or Mm. patterned after and so then i did a, a little more research and and i just happened to think of this but when you have the word it's the mishan I'm probably say that not as well as a Jewish person would, but it's M-I-S-C-H-A-N. And it the first letter is a mem. And it's defined as comes down from heaven, like water or like rain. And um, and then when it joins with the noon, it's pronounced noon. The word is the letter and it means life. And it also spells manna. <laughs> but then we have the second letter is the word sheen which is S-H-I-N, and it's characterized by teeth, and it um, signifies destruction. And then the word actually, the word sheen actually means sacrifice. And then in the next letter, you get cough, and that is a K-A-F, and it describes a hand over the mouth as in refusing to pass judgment, and it symbolizes atonement. And the last letter again goes back to the noon, which is uh depicts life that gives life so i wrote this that manna comes down so the word in the word for tabernacle you have manna which means comes down from heaven to give life you have the letter mim or meme which comes down from heaven sheen destruction of life or sacrifice cough atonement and noon life that gives life and i wrote well this is Wow. This is Yeshua. This is Jesus. (laughs) It is not just Yeshua. It is the gospel. It is the the story of the gospel that life comes down and uh, he atones for our sins. And oh, that's fabulous. Yeah. So I I thought that was pretty cool. I found that and um, I didn't make all that up myself, but I found it and and quoted it. But um, 
But yeah, even within the meaning and the letters of the word for tabernacle, you have all these connections and what it means. And that's the beauty of the Hebrew language too. So Yeah, and you talk about parallels again. So the tabernacle itself is Messiah. Mm -hmm. But when you look at all these other parts of the tabernacle, the priest, Mm -hmm. the altar, the sacrifices, there he is also acts as priest he acts as altar he acts as sacrifice he is both the one that does it and the one he that does it too that's not quite right i understand yeah but he is all of that wrapped up he's all the furniture in there he's all the furniture he's all the coverings he's yeah he's everything that's in there because i even wrote down that we talking about the wood how is Uh the wood like the messiah well, the Messiah, you know, in fact, one of the these uh, one of the chapters in the book, um, I talk about the menorah, the the light that's in the holy place. And one of the interesting things that's left out of the descriptions is there's no base. No base is described for the the lamp mm. and there's no description of how they're supposed to carry it as well. Everything else has poles and, and you know. Yeah loops through which to push those poles so that they can carry stuff. So it's almost like metaphorically this tree, because it's, it's set up, it's, it's fashioned after an almond tree is not even planted in the earth. It's um, has no root, doesn't have roots in the earth. And yet it also has buds and branches and fruit all at the same time, which is no tree on earth does that, mm-hmm. has buds and fruit and flowers all at the same time. That usually is consecutive, not all at the same time. So here's this symbol of life that has is irrespective of time because it's got buds and fruit and everything on it already. Um, and it's lifted up off the earth, metaphorically speaking, because it doesn't have a base here it is shining in the middle of the tabernacle giving light Mm. so but also the other thing is that throughout the tabernacle you have this wonderful combination of wood and gold everywhere at least in the holy place and in the holy of holies and you've got wood as symbolic of humanity or human uh, human nature gold as symbolic of the nature of god So wherever you have wood wrapped in gold, you have Messiah again. You've got the nature of man married together with the nature of God. Um, But when you get to the menorah, it's all gold. And so at first you think, oh, well, God's saying, well, this part is all about just simply the nature of God. But no, because it's gold shaped like a tree, which is wood. So it's wood and gold again, inexorably Uh, attached to each other so that they cannot be separated so here he is he is both god and man both wood and gold um and all in the different parts i mean the the other thing is that even though this is the symbol of messiah we are in that tabernacle in a sense in the same way because we are the wood we are the acacia wood the simple common acacia tree and we've been wrapped in gold so we can fit into this tabernacle because we've been wrapped we've been made glorious we've got a 
we've got a glory that's been bestowed on us, like the tabernacle furniture, a glory that's not our own, but it makes us fit in this place that is so holy and so beautiful. That's good. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm trying to remember, when you talked about the Holy of Holies, um, or I had a question about that, but wasn't the Holy of Holies a perfect cube, a perfect square? Yes. Well, mm-hmm. Jerusalem is also, when it comes down in Revelation, a perfect cube. Mm-hmm. Of course, mm-hmm. much larger, but it's still a perfect right. cube. So there's a parallel there. But right. you also see the tree coming down and lining, even in Ezekiel, the tree of life lining this river that comes out of the temple. I find it interesting because I think that it mentions in Revelation that it bears its leaves and fruit all seasons. All the time. Yes. Uh huh. So it's yeah. like this menorah in the sense that the tree mm-hmm. of, so I, I guess what we are seeing here is more like the tree of life that's yes. back in the tabernacle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That tree of life that was cut off from the cherubim. Mm-hmm when man had to leave the garden of Eden and now and there's there's a point in the um, in the devotional where I talk about you're standing in front of the veil and there's angels all over it so the cherubim are right in front of you and it's almost like you're standing in front of the garden where the cherubim are Mm -hmm. are keeping you out yes and then Jesus is crucified and the veil gets split in half and the the cherubim move aside and now you see the cherubim again, but now they're pointing inward. They're not looking at you. They're they're looking at the main the the main actor in the whole thing, which is the the is God Himself. Mm-hmm. And the sacrifice. And right. Well, the sacrifice doesn't come onto the. Um, oh, it's just the uh, seat. The blood. The blood comes. The blood comes into the mercy seat. So the sacrifice is not there. The sacrifice is out on the on the altar. Um. But they're all pointed in on, uh, you know, the very presence of God himself. Mm. So now the cherubim are turned as we are, and everybody's pointing to the middle. Mm -hmm. And we're all bowing in front of the glory of God. Which goes now, the parallel for me is going to the New Testament where Jesus had resurrected. Mary goes in and what does she see? An angel at the head. And an angel angel at at the the foot of the place where Jesus had laid. And you can imagine that Mm -hmm. his blood was still there in the middle. Yeah, very possibly. He bled a lot. He probably bled out. Mm -hmm. And so I can't imagine that there wasn't blood there. But you see again, you see this whole parallel between the mercy seat being a place that only the high priest could go into. And be and see, you know, see that place once a year. Mm -hmm. And then here's this common everyday woman who goes in to basically tend to Jesus' dead body and she sees the mercy seat again. And it's just such a beautiful. And here you're talking about the place again. Here is this place that traditionally only the high priest can see and only once a year. And even then, I don't think he actually stepped all the way inside. I think he got his arm inside just far enough so that he could splash the blood where it needed to go. Okay. And and that was it. And then you've got all the smoke of the incense in there. So I figure his, you know, he wasn't really seeing it completely clearly either. But Jesus went to make a place for us 
So he opened up a place for us in this holy place. So it's just a, just a wonderful story of love. It is. You, I want you to be in this place with me. But right now you can't be. You don't qualify. So I'm going to make you qualify. And I'm going to open up the place. And then you can come and be with me where I am. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to pay everything that needs to be. I'm going to pay the whole ticket. Mm-hmm. Everything that needs to be paid, I'm going to pay. So that you can come in here and be with me. Yes. Amen. I want to go back to the priest because you've been okay. hitting on them on and off. And okay. um, and this is a great, great thing to understand because in First Peter, it tells us we are a kingdom of priests. We are now the kingdom that God. And one of the things I've learned is that, you know, the priests were the Levites. They were under the in the tribe of Levi and they were called mm-hmm. Levitical priests. But Jesus is from a different priesthood. He's from Melchizedek. And as followers of him, now we are in his kingdom, which and under his priesthood of Melchizedek. And and I don't think that we quite get that all the time. And this has just recently come help me understand. But so when G, when Peter talks about us being priests, how can we know and truly understand the job of a priest if we don't go back to the Torah, the Old right. Testament, and find out? What was so special about them? Yes, exactly. And and so we need to make that connection. We need to go back because there was a reason. I mean, it wasn't a bunch of laws that were just to make life difficult. It was because he expected and and I don't have my Bible with me, but um, in Leviticus, he says constantly, I am Adonai. I am the one who makes you holy. And he's talking to his priests you can't do this. I don't want you doing this. I don't want you involved in that. I don't want you involved in this because I make you holy and you come yes. into my presence and you need to be holy. And, and while yes. yes, Jesus paid the price, we still serve. God's character hasn't changed. He's still a holy God. And if right. we're the priests now, then we need to know what he expects of us. Mm-hmm. And so their clothing, you want to hit on that a little bit? Sure, sure. Well, the most of the priests had pretty simple clothing. Mm-hmm. It was the high priest clothing that's the most interesting. The high priest, um, first of all, had uh, many layers of clothing, so it wasn't just you know one garment that he was that he was wearing. He had a um, uh, he, he had his linen undergarments. And he had a blue robe that had um, pomegranates and uh, bells that would jingle against each other. Um, And he wore a breastplate, a breastpiece, which had a pocket in it and um, was right over his heart. And then the whole vest, the ephod that held the whole thing together, was draped over his shoulders and attached at his shoulders by two onyx stones, one on each shoulder. Now, the onyx stones, the two onyx stones, each had six names written on it, uh, 12 in all, to count for the 12 tribes. The stones on his breast all had a different color and a different position on on the um, breastplate, but each one had a name written on it. 
so that each of the 12 tribes was individually represented on on the breast piece. And I like to think of it as that's us riding in on the great high priest into the Holy of Holies, a place that we shouldn't be able to go. And our name is represented before him or with him as he goes, represented before the father. On the shoulders, everybody is at the same level. There's absolutely no difference between the six over here and the six over there. On the breastplate, there's differences between them. They have individual personalities, you might say, because they've got different colors and they're in a different position, but they're all, um, they're all equal as far as they're part of this beautiful breast piece. So I think it shows God seeing us both as, you know, equally valuable, and yet he sees us individually. We're we're equal, but we're not exactly the same. Um, And he appreciates all those differences that are in us. So the high priest goes in, and these names are to represent Israel itself, all 12 tribes, when he goes in in the presence of the Lord. So with Jesus in this spot. Now he brings all of us in. And these names, there were only 12 names, but they represented more than 12 people. Each tribe had clans and each clan had families and each family had members. And so just because the one name was on there, everybody related to him was also included. So within that name is everybody is re- is represented um, of the tribe. So God hasn't forgotten any of them. He's recognized all of them. They're all there. He hasn't lost them. Okay. So, so he is our high priest and, uh, and we can't see ourselves as the same thing exactly as a high priest. And yet we're supposed to be like him. So what does that mean? That means that we too carry our brothers and sisters mm-hmm. into the holy place of prayer with um, when we go, we carry them in, we bring them before the Lord, we we pray for them, we stand before the altar of incense uh, of prayer, and we we lift them up before the Lord. So um, so in that sense, we we do copy him, we do some of what he does, um, and so we're not high priests, but we are priests yeah. and we are after the, the order of Melchizedek, we are after the order of Jesus. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and they, and I found this interesting because of course, studying the tabernacle and even the temple later on, there were many, many sacrifices made um, regularly, <laughs> different times mm-hmm. of the day you had, animals of all kinds from from birds to the bulls and um and mm-hmm. you and you even mentioned that in a, a blog post you had um today that I uh had read bringing a bull to the altar and I yes. I thought it was interesting and I'm just going to read a little bit you have grabbing a wild bull bulls aren't known for their gentle nature it takes courage to grab one by the nose ring or horns but to box him in and grope for his head no thanks because you you write about that they had to put their they had to lay their hands on its head and here it is this yes. big beast and you write this makes me think the casting for this scenario couldn't have been better what could be more like addressing sin in our lives than disturbing 
a bull in a field. It's quite tempting to leave it be. Both bulls and sin have weapons like horns and hooves that could lash out at us on their way to the altar of repentance. But leave them alone, and they're equally prone to spend their days sniffing for an opportunity to be fruitful and multiply. And of course, that is on her blog, which I'll leave a a link to. But I thought that was such a great representative of sin and repentance. And yeah, and that sin is fighting tooth and nail on the way to repentance, yeah. right? It's just you betcha. But those are the the sacrifices. There were guilt sacrifices. There were um, well, guilt and sin were kind of one and the same. And then there were sacrifices that we they made for a surrender. I, I forget what it's called, but it was more like um, where it was completely burned up on the altar. It the burnt offering. Okay. The, the burnt offering. That makes sense. Burnt offering. And mm-hmm. then you had the praise offering. Um, but we often hear in the New Testament talking about the living sacrifice. Yes. Who were the living sacrifices in the temple or the tabernacle? Well, there aren't any living sacrifices. Okay. Well, I, I I heard that it was the priests who were the living sacrifices. Oh well, yes, okay. yes. In that sense, they were yes, because they had they had left everything aside. Um, they had no property. They had uh, no other responsibilities except to take care of the tabernacle and the duties in the tabernacle, and um, uh, and teach the people. Mm-hmm. They were supposed to also be teachers. Um, so they were living sacrifices. Their their lives were given over wholly, like a burnt offering, to serving the Lord. And of course, the greatest picture of that is Jesus, who gave everything that he was and that he had in order to serve the Lord and do what he asked of him. Um, and he ever lives. Right. You know, even though he was sacrificed. And so, and we can expect the same thing. So here we are living sacrifices. We lay aside all all this stuff. And eventually we will come to the end of this life, but we will live again and be living sacrifices once more. Right. And I think that's interesting too, because we don't often make that connection again, back to the Old Testament and the priests that... When mm-hmm. he tells us to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, he's telling us be like those priests yes. in the temple in the tabernacle that who served and gave everything without no without inheritance. It's just that the difference is we are promised an inheritance. Right. And the another thing about the living sacrifices of the Levites were that they were coming daily, multiple times a day, um, into the Uh, tabernacle and before they did anything they always had to wash Mm. and it wasn't soap it wasn't scrubbing it was just plain water that was poured over hands and feet um, to wash before they did and so there's and it's in a bronze laver and bronze is like the symbol of of sacrifice and and uh, uh, repentance because I mean it's the color of fire one thing. So it looks a lot like the fire, the bronze uh, altar out in front. So this is the water is in bronze. Um, so there's a reflection in there that you're looking at yourself. These were made, the bronze labor was made out of the, the uh, looking glasses of the women that were serving uh, in, in the uh, tabernacle. And, and uh, so 
you've got a reflection in there. So you're looking in the water and yourself and it's like not always nice to see. So you got to wash it off. You So we come, there's this repetitiveness to having to come and wash and then you wash and then you wash and then you wash. Mm-hmm. And that is like our lives where we don't get consecrated to become priests and then we never see the water again. We never see repentance again. It's It's a continual process. It's normal life for us and the way is made clear for us so that we don't have to be annoyed by this and i write someplace in here too that god's not frustrated that we're coming again and again and again to the labor to wash and repent and all of that stuff he's expecting to see us there and so we need to make an appearance at the labor continually and expect i mean that's going to be part of everybody's life yeah that's good. Um, so we don't need to knock ourselves in the head because we got to go back and wash again and repent again. And That's good. And the only thing I would add to that is my understanding of the water was it was called living water mm-hmm. because it was yes. moving water and it wasn't stagnant water. So any water right. that had movement to it was living water. And I had a uh, one of the sources that I uh dug up about looking at the laver was that it was possibly not just a bowl, but it had a bowl with a spigot at the bottom. And then there would be a basin underneath it so that your hands would go underneath the spigot and the water would run over your hands. So it would be living water Mm. that would be uh, moving water that would be cleaning you. Mm. Uh, You're not just dipping your hands in there and kind of washing them all about, but it's, yes, it's moving. Wow. That's really neat. Um. Anything you want to add that we didn't cover? I, I Actually, I finished up the book saying something like that. I said, you know, every book has to stop someplace and this is where we're going to stop. I said, if I kept if I kept on with this, we could be talking forever um, and the, there wouldn't you wouldn't be able to count the number of books that could be written. Um, Sounds like John from John. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He says, so if we keep going. Because my original plan when I started this was 365 days. We're going to have it. And I got overwhelmed. So I, <laughs> there's still plenty more to say about it. But And you're working on a new book. I'm hoping to, yes. Or you I'm have an idea. A new book. I have an idea. I'm in the process. So I'm about mm, not quite halfway through it. But I'm working on the feasts, which was kind of a natural um it was kind of a natural jump off from the um, tabernacle because everything in the tabernacle is so related. It is so lines up so nicely with the feasts. Mm-hmm. So you have the spring feasts, which are uh, uh, Passover and unleavened bread and the uh, sheaf of first fruits. And that coordinates so well with what happens in the um, courtyard of the tabernacle. And so it's like a new birth experience. And then you move into the holy place and the blood moves into the holy place now for Pentecost. And that kind of represents the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And then you move into the Holy of Holies, of course, with the fall feasts, the uh, trumpets and uh, atonement. And um, what am I forgetting? Yes. And booths. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is where everything moves into. It just becomes the kingdom of God. The king moves in, you know. Um, And so um, I'm trying to present it in kind of a different sort of a way where you're 
the the reader is actually walking into a theater and they're seeing the feasts played out past present and future and they're seeing how they line up and how they match up with each other and um in the way that jesus fulfilled them and you know what may be to come and all that kind of stuff so anyway it's kind of a fun fun project it has been delightful i appreciate you being here so much and uh, thank you I'll have links to your book and links to your website and all sorts of things that we talked about. So I appreciate you being on today. Thank you so much. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to Grafted Jewish Roots of Christianity. You can find me at www.graftedjewishroots.com. You can also find me on Twitter at graftedjewishrt. I appreciate you being with me and I'll see you next time.